0: Hey everyone, quick announcement for this episode. The software we use to record remote episodes presented an issue for me this week. Um, it recorded about the first couple of minutes, and that was like the warm-up talk, so I don't think that's in the episode. But uh, didn't record the rest, although it pretended like it was the entire time. So when I downloaded my file, I got a 2 minute 17 second file while everyone else got their 2 hour and change file. What this means is that none of my audio will be in the episode, which is going to result in a unique listening experience. Um, I talk a bit less during the actual content portion of the episode with Richard. Uh, I think it's going to still be a little challenging listening to him respond to questions that I asked, but there's really nothing I could do. One alternative would have been to like listen to it, try to remember what I said, and record that and paste it in. But that would lead to like a bunch of like having to resync after every time that I did that. Plus, I think it would still be pretty disjointed and it would have taken forever. So uh, we actually recorded this the weekend before Christmas and I've been reluctantly sitting on it while I attempted to hear back from their support team. Uh, Zencaster, that is the service we use, which is overall great and affordable. It's just it... I think it's my computer or something. Something weird happened. It also happened during the episode that we did with Elio Ziudkowski for We Want More, the finale episode, but fortunately I had a backup recording running during that one because I didn't want to get screwed again. So <laughs> anyway, um, sorry for the sort of jumbled best you can expect to get during this one. Um, like I said, there's really nothing that could be easily done about it. Uh, I do need to give a big shout out to John Peterson, our patron for this week, since I was the one who named him during the uh to thank a patron section at the end so uh thanks john you rock and you'll be able to hear inyash and jace agree though you won't (laughs) it'll again sound a little disjointed so sorry about this everyone and especially sorry to richard for uh having the episode your first episode on be kind of a wreck but you came through great so when you come back on for future episodes we'll make sure that nothing like this happens again and thanks for putting up with us everybody
1: The Basin Conspiracy. I'm Ian Brodsky. Richard Acton. Richard Acton, who are you, and why are you on this podcast?
2: Uh, well, so I'm I am currently a uh, postdoctoral researcher and um, bioinformatician uh, on the technical staff at a research institute called CCAD in Cologne, in Germany, uh, and I study aging biology.
1: Uh, Nice. So the reason you came was specifically because you heard our longevity episode a couple episodes back, and you said you had things to say about that.
2: Uh, Yes. Yeah. Uh, I I heard you were. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And as a a long term fan of of the show and some of your other works, I I, uh, thought I'd you know take the opportunity to contribute.
1: That is awesome. That is the. Oh, I was going to say that's the best part of having like an audience of people who are really into. tech and, you know, research stuff that every now and then someone's like, I know something about this. Let me help you guys out. And that, that, that's awesome because we learn a lot more and, you know, hopefully our audience does as well.
2: Yep, yeah. And, you know, uh, scientists are always looking for uh, interesting outlets to share their work right because most people we spend most of our time talking to know about what we do because they're like in our niche. So they're probably mm-hmm. a little bit bored of it. You talk okay. to other people. Then... Did you say, yeah. oh, go on. Oh, no, go ahead.
1: Uh, did you say biomathematician?
2: No, no, bioinformatician. I am not a mathematician.
1: <laughs> well, <What>, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's just as confusing. What is a bioinformatician?
2: Okay, yeah. So, I mean, a little bit more clarity on what I actually do day to day. So, I, I, have a, I have a weird uh, split because I'm 50-50 between a technical role and a research role. So, I, I'm in uh, the, the lab of Bjorn Schumacher where I do research work, um, analyzing data. Um, for my own research questions and for uh, others in that group. And then in the technical role, I'm doing um, uh, a bunch of uh, research analysis work, um, a lot of sequencing data analysis for other people in the Institute and setting up some of the core bioinformatics infrastructure. Um, so I'm, at the moment, I'm trying to learn a bunch of infrastructure as code stuff for like Docker so I can set up a server for running a bunch of bioinformatics tools. But uh, yeah.
1: What what would those tools do?
2: Um, the one I'm trying to work on is uh, basically to set up a tool to let other researchers with less command line experience use um, a bunch of bioinformatics tools that otherwise are very difficult to use. It's called Galaxy. But yeah, we're getting a little into the weeds there now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what is bio the bioinformatics bioinformat- thing? Is that just is that information on biological it's, systems?
2: It's 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 data science for biology. Basically. Okay, yeah. And well I mean the, to be honest, it, like the bioinformaticians came first, and the data scientists kind of, in many ways branched out from a lot of stuff that was initially in bioinformatics because uh... genomic information was kind of some of the first data sets that were really big. So the, the sort of the big data bioinformatician, I mean well the big data data scientists that we know today, a lot of them had kind of a, a start as sequencing data really started to get big.
1: So you guys are like the data hipsters, and all these people are like just new on the scene, trying to pretend like we're here.
2: We're all writing in pearl, and uh... (laughs) (laughs) yeah, well, we we moved on, but still, cool. Yeah, I mean, I I can I can offer the perspective of someone working in the field. Um, So I'm I'm not like um, I'm not super current specifically on the sort of um, like longevity interventions uh, that. I mean, I could talk a little bit to those, but like that's not really my area of expertise. I, I'm, I'm kind of more about the basic biology underpinning okay. aging, and specifically the epigenetics of aging. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, would you like me to give the spiel on that again? Okay. Sure. Um, so I'm uh, co-hosting a podcast with my uh, friend, uh, Michael Thank Glinker. Uh, where we are talking about um, a sci-fi series of books um, by Octavia Butler. Um, It's the Xenogenesis trilogy. We're talking about the first one and it's kind of in the style of, we want more or uh, we've got worm um, where I'm um, uh, Stephen and um, (laughs) uh, yeah. And uh, Michael's Brian. (laughs) So I've, I've read it uh, and he hasn't, and I get to have fun about
1: that. Awesome. And, uh, what, you, what is the podcast called?
2: Uh, it's called Xenothesis. Uh, you can find it at xenothesis.com.
1: Awesome. Uh, I have not... I
2: Yeah, Xenogenesis um, is the trilogy, also for some reason rebranded as Lilith's Brood later, after the fact, in like a re-release. And then... Oh. Um, uh, I didn't realize those yeah, were the Dawn same thing. The,
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've read yeah. Um, Wild Seed. And like, I have... Of mm. that book and a few of her short stories that I've read, I've loved them. I just mm. there's so much out there to read. I don't, you know, yeah, forever only,
2: catching too much up. time, yeah, yeah. But uh, the great thing about um, this series of books was, like, we're both biologists, me and my co-host, and there's a mm-hmm. bunch of really interesting biology that gets kind of a much more, um, I think, fuller treatment in this particular sci-fi story than it does in many other sci-fi stories. That's why I picked it.
1: How far through the series are you so far?
2: uh i just edited our 19th episode
1: and how many do you think they're going to be total
2: probably oh and um, I, I, I forgot to compute that i should have checked <laughs> <laughs> how far um, into the
1: trilogy are you at this point then i guess
2: so we're only in the first book i think we're probably about two-thirds of the way into the first book now
1: okay so probably yeah. about 90 episodes altogether
2: uh yeah yeah if, if we um decide to carry on uh directly into the the sequels we might do something else we're not entirely certain yet um yeah
1: Awesome. That is really exciting. I love that there's more and more of these because, like, it's just hmm. more fun reading books when you have these sorts of analyses.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a, I, I loved reading Worm with We've Got Worm as a companion. It was, yeah. yeah.
1: I have a book club where every two weeks we get together and meet and talk about a bu- the book that we all read together over the last two weeks. And that's, like, that really makes reading a lot more fun to have someone else to talk about it with later.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's a great excuse to hang out with friends, podcasting as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. You have a like an external commitment to keep to the schedule. Mm -hmm. Which is the older you get,
1: yeah, the older you get, the more you need that. Yeah, you no longer feel like it's okay just to like go over to someone's house and hang out for a few hours.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything's got to be on the clock for something or other.
1: Mm -hmm. Like I could hang out, or I could use those few hours to get this done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's always Uh, more to get done. Always. So, uh, before we get into the uh, meat of the episode, shall we do our uh, less strong posts like we normally do?
3: I've, I'm here. Yeah. Hey, Hi, just yes. in time. I'm not by being like in the middle of somebody talking.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm currently visiting my parents for Christmas, so I'm, I'm in, in Farnham in the UK, um, but uh, yeah, I, I moved to Germany six months ago, so I'm normally in Cologne.
1: Huh.
3: That's awesome.
1: How many time zones different is Germany from from Britain? Just the one. Just the one. Okay. I realized as I was asking that, I'm, I'm like, I could just Google that. I don't know why I'm <laughs> wasting the time of someone with expertise in bioinformatics on stupid time zone questions.
2: Well, evidently it needs to be done more because that way I would get the math right when I do it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it had, yeah. yeah. I was able oh, to yeah. go out and get my morning walk, so it worked out fine. Nice. Yeah. All right. So as I was saying, the less wrong posts, shall we jump into those? Absolutely. All right. The first one, actually, in sequence is Petrov Day, which we are not going to get into because we've spoken of Petrov Day several times before, I believe. Um, I think our, the one that we had the most to say on it was uh, episode 69, Culture War 2.0, which was two years ago on Petrov Day that that came out, or close to Petrov Day, uh, when someone pushed the button on accident during one of the uh, Petrov simulators. Uh, which we had to comment on because it was pretty awesome. Uh,
3: yeah, we had a really good uh, Petrov Day little rationalist meetup here. Yeah, just we did the ceremony with the candles. Nice.
1: You know what? Next year, maybe we should like have the ceremony and then report back on it afterwards for uh for the episode. Because this year, a bunch of us just didn't go due to a combination of COVID and the fires that made the air hard to breathe. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: You know the pandemic and all the and everything was on fire. Yeah, it's it's a weird time to yep. live. So
2: Petrov Day came up in in our podcast too. Actually, it's a because it's a post nuclear war world. It seemed relevant.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I love the fact that we've sort of got our own holiday thing going.
2: Yeah, nice to have some yeah. uh, rationalist rituals. I suppose you might call them.
1: Uh, but
2: yeah, it takes a while
1: what we really need to do is like be born into rationalism and then have our parents raising us with these rituals as if they're a normal thing. Hmm. Well, no, I mean, it should totally be opt-in, but like Christmas doesn't feel weird because we've all been surrounded by Christmas since we were born, right?
2: Yeah. Opt-in gets complicated for children.
1: Yeah. Like if I were to move to a new society where it had something like Christmas, but I'd never been around for it, I might think it was strange. Hmm.
3: I still think it's strange. I mean, like, I went to Walmart the other day and there was just everything garishly lit and horrible Christmas music playing and all the oh, employees wearing, mean, like... You mean
1: wonderful oh. Christmas music. <laughs> oh, it I love so Christmas aggressive.
2: At least it that's was... actually in December, right? If If it's before this month, then
3: it's... Oh yeah! Oh, in America, and, like it hasn't really been, been Thanksgiving, well. and there's like <laughs> Christmas stuff. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's like Halloween and then Christmas now immediately. Yeah, Thanksgiving has been
1: completely absorbed by the Christmas monster. Hmm. Oh my god! <laughs> I know.
2: Maybe they were celebrating to have Petrov Day. That's like the twenty.
3: <laughs> the twenty-sixth. Uh, yep. th- yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. So.
1: <laughs> okay, well I think Eliezer put it best, so I'm just going to read his post, How to Convince Me That 2 plus 2 equals 3. Um, he starts it <laughs> He starts it off by saying that Rashless put a heavy premium on the paradoxical seeming claim that a belief is only really worthwhile if you could, in principle, be persuaded otherwise. Uh, saying if your retina ended up in the same state regardless of what light entered it, you would be blind. Uh, But then uh, a poster commented uh, that I cannot conceive of a situation that would make two plus two equals four false. And so Eliezer wrote this post in reply, which I just wanted to comment on real quick. This is like the coolest thing that it was, it wasn't just like a series of, of missives sent from on high. Like this was a whole community thing with comments going back and forth and people talking and. Like, this post in the sequences is a direct result of somebody commenting on something he said, which is mm. really cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I think that made a big difference in what LessWrong was and, you know, why LessWrong 2.0 is working as well. Because, again, it's more of a collaborative thing with a lot of people working together than, than just, like, here's my blog about what I want to talk about. Mm.
3: Yeah, uh, I realized I had this thought. Like, I, w- I wish I'd been around when they were being released and when everybody was interacting. And I realized, actually, I kind of was for Slate Star Codex, which had a really similar thing going on.
1: Yeah.
3: Oh, nice. I'm so excited
1: oh, yes. to have Eliezer
3: and Brian interact. <laughs> it's going to be so hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: But he does have some questions lined up, eh? <laughs> Okay, so I guess um, what he draws a comparison to is why you think that 2 plus 2 equals 4 nowadays. And that's mainly because when you have two things, and then you have two more things, you have a number of things that is, you know, 4, two basically. Four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, it's just the way physical reality is. But he says, suppose I got up one morning and took out two earplugs and set them down next to two other earplugs on my night table, and notice that there are now three earplugs without any earplugs having appeared or disappeared. Moreover, when I visualize the process in my own mind, it seems that making two Xs and two Xs come out to four Xs required an extra X to appear from nowhere. Also, I would check a pocket calculator, Google, and perhaps my copy of 1984 where Winston writes that freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals three. (laughs) And none of these were put, like, directly after each other like that. I'm cutting out a bunch of things in the middle uh, for for speed. But what he comes down to is saying that what would convince me that 2 plus 2 equals 3, in other words, is exactly the same kind of evidence that currently convinces me that 2 plus 2 equals 4. The evidential crossfire is physical observation, mental visualization, and social agreement. And, yeah, he also talks about, like, then he would have to start wondering why did he ever think 2 plus 2 equals 4? Was he seen the simulation, as someone, like, tried... put brain damage on him you know what's what was it that was so wrong about his his viewpoint but i mean on the one hand i have an incredibly hard time visualizing how you could have two things and two things and yet somehow when those are thought of as together you have three things but like if that's the way reality worked you can't really argue with reality right there's
3: plenty of things that reality does Hmm.
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) well you couldn't just take you couldn't take two barrels away again because then you would have three barrels again. Because if two plus two equals three, then three minus two equals two again.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the the point that he's trying to make is less about the specifics of arithmetic and more about radical <laughs> empiricism, right? <It's>... mm
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that the first instinct was to, like, start munchkinning it and yeah. start lawyering the munchkinning. trash was a rationalist response. Yes.
1: Well, yeah, it'd be lopsided with only three wheels, but you would have four wheels, so it'd be okay.
3: All right, let's figure out how we can gain the stock market.
1: <laughs> well, why did you only buy three tires, sir? <laughs> Maybe all
3: cars would just be those three-wheeled cars.
1: Chikes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a scheme to get you to buy more tires than you need. Yeah, I I, I was reminded before we move on um, of a story that appeared in Strange Horizons, which is a cool online magazine that actually plays, pays professional rates for those of us who try to sell things sometimes. But um it, back in 2000, there was a story called "The Secret Number," which I don't remember too much of, except it like it was a, a detective uh, murder mystery short story where there's a mathematician that's been killed at the beginning and his assistant keeps claiming that it was the secret number that killed him because it doesn't want to be found out and it turns out there's a secret (laughs) number between three and four called bleem and (laughs) and obviously the guy doesn't believe him there's some like questioning how could this work blah 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 he's like it just does they're hiding and so they arrest him Mm -hmm. and the next morning like the assistant is found dead and uh, he's like, oh, it must be a suicide. He felt so guilty for killing uh, the mathematician guy. But then at the very end, there's uh, three jelly beans left on the murder room nightstand. And one of the detective assistants picks it up and is like, hey, look, free jelly beans. And the first detective is like, no, don't. And he eats the jelly bean and he looks down on the night table and there's three jelly beans left. <laughs> Because the mathematician managed to to isolate bleem jelly beans rather than three or four. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it's a fun little story.
2: It reminds me a bit of this. This really weird movie about like the whole P equals NP thing, and some mathematician discovers some like uh, uh, hacky shortcut to prove that it's the case, and th- you can. Uh, solve stuff in in polynomial time and then there's a whole like conspiracy i I can't remember the name of this film but
1: are you thinking of pi
2: i don't think so maybe
1: at the very end you
2: know it's been so long since i've seen it i can't remember
1: Oh, and there's, like, a cabal <laughs> of Orthodox Jews that are after him, in addition to, like, stockbrokers <laughs> and, like, all these various powerful groups around the world.
2: That does sound kind yeah, of I need familiar. To know what this
1: is. Yeah, because <laughs> the number that he discovered that solves the P M P problem is also the secret name of God that they've been trying to find forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it sounds ridiculous, but it's really trippy and cool. It's yeah. uh, by the same guy who did Requiem for a Dream and some other, like, okay. arty movies.
2: It's, it's like the long version of that chapter in, in Methods where Harry does the thing with the time turner to do prime factorization with Shaw's algorithm.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a really trippy movie. <laughs> and I guess I just gave away the ending, so I'm sorry about the spoilers. Maybe we should beep that part out? Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the post ends with, there's really only two possibilities for a belief effect: Either the belief got there via a mind-reality-entangling process or not. And, yeah, that's that's what he was saying. That is how you would entangle your mind with reality, by putting two and two jelly beans together and somehow getting bleem jelly beans rather than four. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, not everything, not everything has to have a beautiful segue, right? Sometimes we can just be like, and now let's move on to the next post.
3: It's so enjoyable watching him create them. That's true. Keep it up. All right. Uh... There's two sealed boxes for auction, A and B. Only one contains a valuable diamond, and there are all a manner of signs and portents indicating whether a box contains a diamond, but I have no sign which I know to be perfectly reliable. There's blue stamp on one box and etc. There's some things. Now suppose there's a clever arguer holding a sheet of paper and they say to the owners of box A and B, bid for my services and whoever wins my services, I shall argue that their box contains the diamond so that the box will receive a higher price, and they do that. Yeah.
1: And uh, the box owners bid, and box owner B wins uh, bids higher, so he wins. And then the uh, organizer, the, the arguer rather, starts organizing thoughts. And he says, first <laughs> thing he does is write, and therefore box B contains the diamond at the bottom of the paper. And then at the top, he starts writing in all the many factual evidences for why that is. Because uh, there's many signs of importance that, you know, point to one box or the other. Yeah, blue stamp. stamp. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Lawyer's Yeah, but, but, you know, of key importance is that the clever arguer ignores all the ones that might argue in favor of box A, and only writes down the ones that would argue in favor of box B. And uh, Eliezer Yes, exactly. (laughs) And yeah, uh, Eliezer asks us to imagine a collection of worlds where there is some objective frequency when either box A or box B contains the diamond. Uh, If you happen to be an English speaker, you might think that the ink that's on that paper somehow meant that box B contained the diamond, but within the subset of worlds where the ink says box B contains the diamond, there's already a percentage of worlds where actually box A contains the diamond, and that does not change regardless of what's written on the blank lines above. The, The arguments on the blank line above are not in any way entangled with what's actually in the box. And he he contrasts this to someone who's genuinely curious and first writes down all the distinguishing signs of both boxes on the paper and then applies their knowledge of probability and at the bottom says, therefore I estimate an 85% probability that box B contains the diamond. Uh, since that one actually has a chain of cause and effect that causes the ink at the bottom of the paper to say 85%, uh, it is entangled with the evidence and so it will accurately reflect uh, reflect the worlds rather than not being um, entangled with the the evidence <laughs> at all this is hard
3: to summarize yes but uh your effectiveness as a rationalist is determined by whichever algorithm actually writes the bottom line of your thoughts yeah is sort of hmm. the summary of it
1: yeah and this post has become pretty famous go ahead sorry yep yeah, all right but you do aria get out of here sorry my dog. <laughs> Uh, but
3: like you're you talking to Steven. <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> get out of here, Stephen, with your logic and words. No, uh, sorry. Uh, no, I guess the thing is, like, you do have some evidence. There's, there's conclusions you can draw. But the important part is, like, even if the the conclusion is the sa- similar for both for both um, pieces of paper. Like with one of them, the conf- the conclusion was written down beforehand, so none of the evidence really matters at all, and, and that makes a big difference. Like, did you write your bottom line after considering all the evidence, or did you come to it first and then are looking for ways to justify it?
2: Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. This is why it is an excellent idea to publish uh, your planned methods of analysis in advance when doing yes. scientific research.
3: Yeah, pre-registering your hypothesis. Exactly,
2: pre-registration—something we really don't do enough of in academic publishing. But like, we have this exact same issue, right, where we kind of loosely formulate some hypotheses, gather a bunch of data, and then you know, this statistical test is definitely the most applicable to my data because of
1: reasons. Oh, <laughs> I have gotten the impression that they that lately it become a much more common to do the pre-registering. Is it still not common enough?
2: Um, well, so there are specific disciplines, mostly in medical contexts for medical trials where it's much more rigorously enforced. Um, but the sort yeah. of, um, there's a lot of subcultures within academia, different disciplines uh, and different norms apply in those different communities. So uh, many still don't have a good norm of pre-registration.
1: Oh. How um, do you feel about bioinformatics?
2: Uh, well, mm, we, we have a problem, not even with, <laughs> we have a problem with being able to reproduce our results, let alone, um, uh, pre-register them. Uh, but, huh. I mean, there's a, am uh, I'm, I'm, there's a whole rabbit hole that is like another episode's worth of talking <laughs> that I fear we should probably not go down, um, to discuss academic publishing because, uh, y- yeah, uh, somebody okay, restrained well, maybe me.
1: We can, maybe we can have that episode <laughs> that at in the future date.
2: Maybe at some point. Yeah.
1: So it, it it's hard to even get reproductions in bioinformatics Is that cuz biological systems are so complex or what? Uh,
2: ironically because computing systems are so complex. Uh, we, we don't have a, enough emphasis on sort of like reproducible build environments for our analyses and and not enough norms around publication of code and proper source management. It's a whole um like most bioinformaticians are trained as biologists and not as computer scientists or as, um, software engineers. So a lot of good practice from sort of industry software engineering is not known to people working in bioinformatics. Um, oh, that sounds so really frustrating. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a whole kind of a, um, a thing. And also the, the incentive structure is not great for, um, adhering to those best practices because, um, like the, the emphasis on, is on publication, and very few people reviewing publications have the qualifications to, to consider those computing aspects of it as well. Like they're, they're interested in in the methods and the specific biological questions, but not so much necessarily in, in the process. There's kind of a whole new set of strong norms around reproducibility of code that need to come into force that haven't yet. Um, but, uh, It takes more time to do that, and that means it takes more time to publish, which means it doesn't get done.
1: Yeah, because then you will perish, since you did not publish enough. Yeah, damn. Do you think is does the new generation like seem to be pushing more for that, or is this just a static problem?
2: Um. Well, there's there's a few people who kind of
1: there's
2: enough people who are aware that it's an issue that it's starting to come up. But I think you know, it'll it'll take a while for people to adapt, right? People just need to, to know about the existence of these tools and the norms around their use need to get stronger, um, which has to come from from reviewers and publishers. And there's a whole process before the culture changes, but um, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there.
3: With clinical research, it was having software that had to be FDA compliant mm, or yeah. uh, compliant with like all of the different regulatory. Yeah, that's a, a whole other um, challenge, and regulatory similar, compliance. Yeah, similar constraints. Hmm.
1: All righty. Uh, I guess let's wrap up this post and then actually get into this stuff. Sure. Um, let's see. Where were we? Oh, yeah. He brought up the example. I guess Stephen said there were some real-life examples. Another one was, if your car makes metallic squealing noises when you brake and you aren't willing to face up to the financial cost of getting your brakes replaced, you can decide to look for reasons why your car might not need fixing and then he says okay this is really interesting so I want to talk about this real quick uh, but the actual percentage of you that survive in everett branches or tegmark worlds is determined by the algorithm that decide that decided which conclusion you would seek arguments for um, I so obviously that's true but there's a little aside within this which I found really interesting when, uh, I, that I skipped. He says, but the actual percentage of you that survived in every Branches or Tegmark worlds, which we will take to describe your effectiveness as a rationalist, which I never noticed before when reading this, but which seems to me really huge. Is this like a, a good way to, to decide to describe someone's effectiveness as a rationalist? How many of the multi-worlds they survive in?
2: It feels like that might be vulnerable to what professional poker players call "resulting." There is a similar difficulty in like evolution, right? So, if if you are only updating based on outcome and not based on method, then yeah. in harsh learning environments, you're, um, you won't necessarily do as well uh, in compared to um, like uh, generous or gentle learning environments, like the difference between chess and poker.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, but you can't see the outcomes because you can't see other ef- other effort branches or Tegmark worlds.
2: True, but isn't isn't that what he's trying to do here? I think like he jump, is. jump yeah, back right. one level and tot up the number in which you survive.
1: Um, yes, you are correct. He is looking at outcomes. Hmm. Yes. Hmm.
2: Hmm. So that there may be, depending on the environment, specific circumstances in which being systematically wrong or at least uh, employing some mostly right but less expensive method that doesn't necessarily give you the best result in terms of absolute truth value might produce better survival results, so you'd end up with a higher total even if it wasn't objectively the most rational strategy
1: okay I think i see I think I see what Steven's saying that this is uh an application for your or a description of your effectiveness only in the case of whether brakes need replacing or not not as like a general rule because like otherwise yeah otherwise the most effective rationalist in quotes would be uh the one who never leaves the house because it's risky to go outside your door Mm. which which i don't think is actually going to be an effective life for very many people at all especially as we now all have you know some experience with that over the last year Mm -hmm. yes but it's i don't think it is the most it is not the most effective way to have a world i think like it's you have to take some risk. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's a similar kind of thing that produces like the origin of, of um, like perceptual biases, right? And it, it, it's a good heuristic shortcut for getting the answer efficiently and not uh, yeah n- n- yeah not n- wasting like, too many resources. Yeah, you, you wouldn't like the, the optimization procedure is not optimizing for ac- uh, like accuracy alone. It's op- optimizing for survival, which may. Mm-hmm requires sacrificing some accuracy if, for energy efficiency.
1: Yeah. And then there's also the question of, you know, is your survival maximized by holding up inside? Probably not because then society will not get to the point where it can overcome aging and uh, and you're going to die of old age eventually. Whereas if you took some risks and went outside and helped society progress, maybe we could get to there. Yep. Which would be where... a great segue to the episode if, yes. if we were done with this. <laughs> uh,
2: well, that's where... Um, the distinction between Darwinian evolutionary processes of the normal kind and mimetic evolution exists, right? That's where, so you know, ev- evolution is myopic. It, it, it only is interested in what in the past produced successful results. It can't look forward and make adjustments based on models of what it think will happen. It's only, it's limited to its statistical summary of the yeah. past. Yeah. Whereas memetic just... replicators have got feedback loops, and you know they can model stuff and uh, have that advantage.
1: And that's why they took over the world.
3: Yes. I was just watching this uh, YouTube video of somebody who is programming cars to run around a track and using uh, a what is it, evolutionary uh, uh, mm. algorithm, to just to get one that could just drive around the track correctly, mm-hmm. and just kept you know, uh, tagging that one, reproducing the one that got the furthest along the track. And it was hilarious to watch because there was hundreds of cars just spinning in circles, crashing into walls. (laughs) (laughs) And the the one that would like, just by complete accident, like end up the furthest along the track would just reproduce that one. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, they did get like, actually, it only took a few generations before they got one that could drive around the track. But it was all good. They pointed out this is all completely by accident though Mm. the you know algorithm doesn't know it's a car it doesn't know what the the car in the track represents or
2: yeah that's one reason why evolution is very good at producing very lateral solutions though because like um have you ever seen the analogous um visualization of a learning to walk um simulation because in that one now you get some really weird strategies to solve the problem of get this collection of points to oh, yeah. a further distance right so there's one where it just makes a really tall thing and falls over <laughs>
3: yes that's my favorite one <laughs> yeah.
2: it's like, okay i mean you solve the problem but that's not exactly walking good, um, yeah. <laughs> or there was um evolutionary circuit design where uh, some evolutionary algorithm figured out how to make a clock without a um without a loop and it turned out to be exploiting some weird physical property of the chip that nobody had thought of making a clock out of before because it just you know, wouldn't occur yeah. to you. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, we don't even have that good of a model of the weird physical properties of the chip, right? We just expect it to run as gates and don't think about you know, the slight magnetic fluctuations on it as bits flip.
2: Yeah, we think of it as an abstraction and not as a physical system and therefore yeah. miss the shortcut.
1: Yeah. The, uh jace real quick the cars were these like small remote control cars i'm assuming
3: no it was um a simulation of cars on a track oh, like it was okay. just a 2d uh basically drawing of a track and, and like the cars and there was something i guess bounding the i'm not exactly sure how it was like programmed but the cars could move and the they could only move all along the track and the track was wavy.
1: Okay, because at first so, I was visualizing, like, actual old Oldsmobiles or something, you know? Just running oh, into walls. that would be awesome.
3: Like, if somebody programmed a bunch of self-driving cars to try to... Yeah. I mean, it would be a waste of vehicles, but it would be really fun to watch. Like Demolition one of those old Derby.
1: Derby. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome.
3: Uh, yeah. If I ever win the lottery, I want to just fund ridiculous things like that. <laughs> I wonder
1: if that would be worth it for... for tesla to fund something like that just as they sort of um i guess i guess it already has enough name recognition right now it wouldn't really help that much for publicity
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah <laughs> yeah yeah
2: i mean you might get some harsher selection pressure on the edge cases right? some weird stuff that wouldn't normally crop up in road situations you might be able to improve the functioning in those edge cases from something like this
1: Oh, it would be really great if it was like a whole heap of cars and one of them learned to shortcut by bouncing off other cars and running them into walls.
3: Just got really aggressive. Yeah. It's like, I got my passengers there safely. Yep. <laughs> everything else is on fire.
2: <laughs>
3: we may have to Okay, does anybody know Elon Musk's marketing person? Because
1: <laughs> Tesla, their, their <laughs> motto is everything else is on fire. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Honestly, isn't that like kind of the thought behind the family Hummer became mm-hmm. really popular in the U.S. Oh yeah, it's like bigger and bigger SUVs. Yeah, brighter and brighter lights, blind everybody else on the road.
1: Till eventually, you're running a tank or down the street. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Uh, okay, so to follow, finish up, um, yeah, when he was talking about the the algorithm you're using, it's he says in this case, the real algorithm is never repair anything expensive. If this is a good algorithm, fine. If this is a bad algorithm, oh well. The arguments you write afterwards, above the bottom line, will not change anything either way. Uh, he does say at the very end, as a caution, uh, this is intended as a caution for your own thinking, not a fully general counterargument against conclusions you don't like. The world's cleverest arguer may point out that the sun is shining, and yet it is still probably daytime. So yeah, that people often have a um, a habit of saying like, oh, well, you're just writing your bottom line first to dismiss arguments which, you know, may be good arguments after all. So remember that this is more for your own use. Do not be doing this in your own thinking and
3: handicapping yourself. But do look out for other people who might be doing it to try to sell you something. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm.
2: Now, I always thought this had interesting implications for um, investigative as opposed to adversarial legal systems.
3: Hmm.
1: In, in what way?
2: Uh, in in trials right I mean the the normal practice is the adversarial court at least in um, like descendants of the British legal system uh, mm-hmm. where you know you've got two sides that advocate for either side and then there's a few investigative legal systems I think some of the Scandinavian countries follow an investigative approach where you don't have the sort of oppositional structure it's more um, there is an uh, an inquiry into the events that took place but um, huh. the the adversarial system has some merits from the perspective of um, potential perverse incentives. Yeah. Yeah. Menos, right. there's even like the, the American versus the British approach, to the adversarial legal system has some interesting differences because in the States, you guys have prosecutors and defense attorneys who are always on one side, always the prosecutor, always the defense over here. We have barristers. They swap, they do both.
1: That would be an
3: interesting change. Yeah,
2: yeah, and yeah, and and then and it's always that they always have that perspective yeah. on it. They're never on the other side of the table. So, I,
1: yeah. I mean, I like that. I, I kind of like that system because of you know people do just do bottom lining and looking for things that'll support what they already believe. So, having two people that have the bottom line of opposite uh, of opposite bottom lines, I think will. Manage to get all the evidence out but that's only assuming that they're both competent and you know interested in doing a good job but yeah that it does lead to problems where uh the people who are always prosecutors tend to form like uh good relationships with the police and they will sometimes cover for the police and the police will do them favors and things end up not being very fair at all if uh if they're in bed like that whereas if you had the barristers, then I'm assuming the relationships don't get as cozy. Is that the case?
2: Um, well, there's a sort of slightly different set of cozy relationships, but it's it's less kind of um, tribally entrenched. It's a bit more. Um, the cozy relationships are kind of with the judiciary, I think, perhaps more. Uh, there's, you know, the Crown Prosecution Service has its issues. It's, uh, no, nowhere's perfect, but, you know.
1: Yeah i yeah, think it's I've,
2: probably better than the american approach to be honest but
1: yeah i mean even like our comedy shows i watch um been watching brooklyn Nine Nine lately and they have the thing where all the cops i mean it's it's a comedy show it's fun it's lighthearted. but every now and then they go to court and all the cops hate the defense attorneys because they're like yeah these are the the scum of the earth that are trying to get criminals off of off of their time and back out on the streets and i that's yeah that's yeah that's
2: Free, it's not... an unhealthy tribalism no? mm-hmm sorry another tangent (laughs) yes yes it does nice segue
1: all righty so yes everybody remember those last two segues that we had that were really good and pretend we said them right now (laughs) so richard you are in longevity research
2: uh, well, so the, the group I work in at the moment is focused on DNA damage repair and aging. And the model system we primarily use is C. elegans, which is a small nematode worm. Uh, but before this, I was um, doing my PhD work in um, the epigenetics of aging. Um, so I was doing some stuff with epigenetic clocks.
1: <laughs> so what, what does the epigenetics of aging mean? That's the reason that we start aging due to environmental reasons?
2: um well to some degree uh, so back to basics for a moment um you've got your dna you know the conventional double helix that's the genetic information that doesn't change much through the course of your life and then you have the annotations to your genetic sequence that's the epigenetics right so the epigenetics are um, modifications to the dna itself which don't change the way that it pairs um that's, so thing. for example um dna methylation it's a modification to the cytosine base that um can change the, the way the DNA is expressed. And then DNA in your cells is packed into um, chromatin, which is a collection of proteins and uh, DNA. Um, so it's the, that double helix structure that we're all familiar with from the popular meters is wrapped around these sort of disk-like proteins called histones, and they, um, they can also be modified. So modifications to those and, and different versions of those are what you might consider to be epigenetic modifications. So they're on top of the genetic information and provide information about um, which cell type um, the um, a given cell might be. So you've got the same genetic information in all your cells. So you have to ask the question of, how is it that my brain cells know to be different from my liver cells and so on? And that's what's encoded in epigenetic information.
1: So it had been my understanding that epigenetics, uh, the epigenetic changes all happen... For the most part, all happen either in gestation or early childhood. Is that true, or am I wrong?
2: Um, I mean, the, the the sort of the bulk of the epigenetic program, as it were, is laid down in development, and then there are subsequent environmental factors that can influence ge- epigenetic information. Um, there's a um, I, like I think so. Your characterization is is pretty accurate. It's mostly like it's most plastic. To environmental influence early on, and becomes somewhat less so with age.
1: So, like by the time you hit teens, are you done getting your epigenetic stuff modified, or can it still happen?
2: Um, it can still happen. Yeah, um, it's just that there's a um, like the, the magnitude. I I would say of the, of the sorts of changes that you could you could affect would be less. So the, the sort of origin of epigenetics is actually in developmental biology because um, it's it's um, epigenetics that sort of lay down the specifics of the developmental program. So, you know, you start from a single um, zygote cell, and then the, as that cell divides, the, the environmental cues around it uh, influence what the epigenetic state of the individual cells will be. And there's this sort of self-organizing process that controls what many of those environmental cues for an individual cell will be. So as you develop, there are um, particular like chemical gradients um, that might tell which cell um, where to start differentiating to become an adult cell type. So there's this um, sort of concept of you know stem cells and differentiated cells. They are kind of at opposite ends of this this axis. You've got the like the, the pluripotent stem cells that can become any cell type that you start out with at the zygote, and then you've got the differentiated cells which are specific functional sort of endpoint cells like you know your livers and cells and your neurons. Um, and the developmental program kind of dictates through epigenetic information um, and through environmental cues which shape what that epigenetic information will be, um, the path that a cell takes from um, that initial pluripotent stem cell uh, down to a differentiated cell state.
1: So mm-hmm.
2: Okay. I mean, there's a bunch of different mechanisms associated with that, but many of them you can kind of broadly simplify. So for example, um, uh, there's this concept of things called morphogens. Uh, So it's like a chemical gradient in the environment. So let's say you've got an animal where you've got the head at one end of the tail at the other. And then at the head end, you've got like a really high concentration of some chemical marker. At the tail end, you've got a really low concentration. So somewhere like... And a quarter of the way from the back you want to start developing some legs right so whatever cells are in that area might take a cue from a morphogen that's at about you know 25 percent of the maximum concentration at the head end that says oh okay I'm in the leg region so I should start going in the leg direction right that's a that's a <laughs> kind of slight oversimplification but those kind of uh, mechanisms are what yields um, know um, the the patterning of an adult organism extremely hmm. yeah
3: uh, stuff uh, does happen not maybe that
2: yeah that I mean was... it's uh, it's not always perfect and there are varying degrees in different organisms to which it is defined um, and to which it is stochastic.
3: Um, yeah.
2: Oh yeah,
3: yeah it is really good. Uh, if you remember thalidomide, Hmm. I think it was the that they were prescribing for a while this thalidomide for um, morning sickness pregnant women.
1: That is every single time anyone says anything bad about the FDA, everyone comes back with yeah. thalidomide, autoenza- and you are like um, one <laughs> time they got lucky.
3: Well, there was also the um, Tuskegee syphilis experiment, and yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, I can talk about that. But thalidomide caused uh, well, it was it was a good like I guess. Pain medication for pregnant women. I'm not actually sure what they were prescribing it for, uh, yeah, so it, but it, it, it was, caused limbs to not develop hmm. in there in the babies. It
2: was <laughs> prescribed as an anti medication for for morning sickness. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the, uh, so the there's the story there is quite interesting because it's it's um, there are different isomers of the thalidomide molecule. And um, uh, they have um, uh, handedness, right? So there's like a left-handed and a right-handed version of thalidomide. Um, it, and so one is, of one, them uh, is toxic, safe? the other one is safe. Yeah. Mm. But when uh, okay. you synthesize them, you get what's called a racemic mixture, which is equal parts of both. Uh, uh, and they hadn't done enough work in the synthesis process to ensure that they could purify out the right version. Um, and in fact, you can safely use thalidomide for certain things today
3: if you use the right isomer. Yeah, we're still totally using it in cancer care. Yes. Which...
1: Although, if you're in cancer treatment, you're probably not pregnant anyway. Yeah.
3: You're, if you're in a clinical trial, you can't be pregnant. Okay. Cause, because of that. <laughs> yeah. You have to promise that you will use like a, a, an effective form of contraception, and you have to describe it, and they have to ask you about it every time. It's it's really awkward. Well, Especially when thing. your patients are like 84, and it's like, so, have you been using protection? <laughs> and it's like, I have 84, and I have cancer. I am not even sexually active. Yeah. The government makes me ask you this.
1: <laughs> yeah, just, just say yes. That, that sucks. Also, what, doesn't, like, chemotherapy
3: and radiation... That, okay. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you... Is it,
2: I wonder, does that have implications for how they do safety assessments for drugs for pregnant women? Cause
3: oh, yeah. It's, like, it a huge be, debate. Yeah. It's kind of a between right now, um, they went really, the government went really paranoid about it, mm-hmm. um, where... Definitely like that you try to err on the side of never giving any kind of drug that could that have any potential of causing like fetal harm to patients who are still of like reproductive age. But there's another lobby and it's kind of moving in the direction of well, it should be the the parents' choice whether they decide to enroll in the trial and potentially to like what you know, eyes wide open, sign up for it, take something that could potentially harm a fetus.
2: Hmm. I can I'm see how moving in that direction approach.
3: now. Last I heard it anyway. I could see how the
2: conservative approach would have better PR value.
3: Yeah. Hmm. Does Isn't everything
1: potentially harmful to a fetus? I mean, that sounds a um, lot like California's, this has been found by the government of California to potentially cause cancer thing.
3: Oh, well, yeah, no, it's like, <clears> unless it's in, there's like various categories and there's a few things that have been approved, but like very few. And if, if it's a research drug, then like we, you just don't know. So yeah, yeah it ex- uh, excludes most things so to return a minute to the, yeah. <laughs> the developmental biology stuff we were talking about
2: before there's a useful um image i'd like to put in people's heads as a, a way of thinking about developmental biology so um there's this guy called conrad <clears throat> conrad waddington who has this notion of the epigenetic landscape so if you picture a a hillside with um a valley running down it like a, a you start with a single um valley at the top and then it branches out into many tributaries or um not tributaries branches tributaries will go the other way around anyway yeah um so if you then place a like your pluripotent stem cell at the top of this landscape and kind of picture it rolling down the slope you have uh, a bunch of places where you can pick where it'll go into which branch of the river um, and those are like the developmental decisions. Right, that's where something changes in the epigenetic state of the cell, which says, "I'm not going to be um, in this cell lineage, but I'm going to be in this other cell lineage." And then once you've rolled down to the bottom, you've got, you know, so each of the different valleys that the rivers run into represents like a a differentiated terminal um, cell state.
1: And uh, so, what what does all this have to do with aging?
2: Ah, yes. So, uh, good point. We should bring it back to that. (laughs) So there is, um, there's kind of a, a there are many theories associated with what um, what aging is. Um, there's a lot of sort of damage-based theories, like reactive oxygen species accumulation of mutations. Um, but one that's kind of gaining a little bit of popularity at the moment is a sort of epigenetic information theory of aging. Um, it's quite popular with uh, a guy called David Sinclair, who's pretty well known in uh, the field. Um, he's uh, written a popular book on the subject. Um, I think it's why we age and why we don't have to. Is the title, which is a bit of an overstatement, in my opinion. But <laughs> yeah, you got to sell books.
1: Yeah. Um, we we mentioned him on our last podcast too.
2: Yes, uh, he's uh, he's well known. There's a couple of uh, you know, he's very slightly uh, controversial on a couple of points. Just for, you know, he's a he's a solid scientist in most regards, but he has a slight tendency towards hyperbole in places. That's just. Mm-hmm. So, I mean,
1: I also would like to not age, but I don't believe I can totally stop it yet.
2: Yes. it's a, I think it's a slightly more thorny problem
1: than he
2: um, at the characterizes as. And actually, the developmental biology picture is a really good place to start on where I slightly differ with David on this. One of the... Um, so if we return to that picture of the, the, the epigenetic landscape for a second, and we've got uh, these cells in the, the valley at the bottom of this hill. Um, so in when they're functioning well, when they're doing their job correctly as a, as a terminally differentiated cell, you know, it's a liver cell, being a good liver cell, doing liver stuff, right? Um, if it starts to become less liver-like, either by maybe sort of jumping over to the next valley a little bit or mm-hmm. rolling back up the hill ever so slightly, becoming a bit de-differentiated, oh. um, that, I think, those sorts of properties are what we see in aging cells, right? They cease to become quite as tightly functional in the role that they were sort of differentiated to be.
1: They Um, can undifferentiate?
2: Just a little bit, yeah. So what the, the differentiation is kind of enforced by the epigenetic information. So the particular state of the epigenetic information in the cell tells it what genes to express, what um, environmental stimuli to listen to, how to react to, to stuff in the environment. So if that information over time becomes degraded, as information does when there's a finite amount of energy to maintain it, um, you, you will lose the, the precise description of that state. Right? So it becomes slightly less livery than is ideal for a liver cell.
1: Right? Oh my god. I, so I, I love this metaphor because like, as I've gotten older, I found myself not giving as much of a fuck about like <laughs> external nice. pressures in my environment. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't really care all that much what you think I'm okay. I'm set in my life and I'm just going to ignore certain particularly whiny people. But like, now I'm viewing all my cells as being like, yeah, I don't give a th- fuck about what you think. I'm not going to mm-hmm. be that much of a liver cell anymore. Yep, I'm like yep. some of my cells are literally becoming grumpy old men.
2: Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, and occasionally, oh, they have a, a midlife crisis and go off and become cancer. That's... <laughs> oh,
1: there's nothing worse than old people. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, but so apologies um, to
3: any older listeners. So to re- to return
2: <laughs> to, to the the point where I think um, David's a little bit off about this. So what? Um, so his sort of um, epigenetic aging um, hypothesis kind of has this idea of if you take these terminally differentiated cells and you roll them back up the hill just a little bit. You de-differentiate them a touch by using um, some of the factors that you find in stem cells and then let them roll back down the hill again. So they'll kind of settle back into the groove. <gasps> you could the, do that? Uh, that's the idea, right? Um, so the the idea is that you, you de-differentiate them just enough that you can get them to start doing what they should be doing again. Um but the catch is that the um, the process of deciding in which valley you end up is determined by those developmental cues. So to go back to what we talked about earlier in the conversation, that that like gradient between like the head and the tail, where you had a particular concentration that was close to where the legs are, so you should become legs, right? That um, information, that chemical gradient, is present during development, but not in adulthood. So uh, when you roll the ball back up the hill, it doesn't necessarily know into which groove to roll back down because there's not the environmental cues present to say, you should be going this way.
1: And you can't give an adult like a chemical cocktail to stimulate that?
2: Well, that's, that's where um, it gets a little bit more complicated because it's a very precise chemical cocktail that defines what particular function a cell should be doing. Um, And so the the idea in this sort of uh, epigenetic rejuvenation stuff where you roll a ball back up the hill a little bit and let it roll back down is that there's enough information in the environment and in the cell's epigenetic memory to remember where it should be rolling back to. But um, I don't think there's quite enough there to get it to reliably roll back into the right spot. I think we need... um, something like uh, that chemical cocktail that you described to ensure that it'll end up back in the right spot instead of becoming cancer
1: and we don't have anything even approaching at that chemical cocktail yet um
2: we have something resembling it in some areas but delivering it um and the specifics of how we might go about it that's still very um very up in the air there's a lot of people in the field of regenerative medicine who are working on figuring out how to Cause a cell to differentiate into a particular type of cell. Um, so, it, if you if you fuse together those two approaches, if you take this notion of you know roll it back up the hill just a little bit, and then you add to it some direction with uh, some chemical information of where you want it to go, then let it roll back down the hill. That might work. Um, but at the moment, those are somewhat disparate areas of research, and they're both pretty early on. So. Uh, combining them is sort of the the next step, I think, in both of those areas.
1: Okay. How do you roll it up the hill?
2: Uh, So that's um, in... um, What is usually used there is some subset of what are called the Yamanaka factors. Um, So those are a set of genes which induce pluripotency, uh, so that ability to become any other cell type in uh, in an, an adult cell. So you can take an adult cell, you can express four genes mostly um and then it will take on the properties of a stem cell. Um well some of them will. There's a um success rate. Not all of the cells um end up becoming very potent. But uh how do you so, do, how do, you do that though?
1: Do you like have to directly inject each individual cell or
2: um well it's often a um a sort of viral transfection method where you might put the genes in um, uh, some uh, genome-engineering vector in a virus, and it kind of gets pasted into the genome of the cell you're looking for, or it might be um, uh, expressed separately on the vector. So instead of integrating it into the host genome, you just have it present in the cell so it can uh, express those genes but not be integrated into the host genome. There's a a bunch of different specific methods of how you might do that, but uh, some form of... But
1: that's like individual cells, like on a petri dish or something, right? Is is there some way to do that in a human body? Uh,
2: well, yeah. Only with um, at the moment, the most successful methods are using viruses to introduce the the genetic material. Okay. Um, but the success rate is a bit low, um, so uh, only one in well, it varies a lot experiment but one in some number of cells might be one in 100 might be one in four uh, if you're really lucky um we'll end up with a copy of this gene uh, genes that you want to express
3: i don't know if anyone's doing this but uh with cancer care we were mm-hmm. taking car t cells uh mm. and harvesting uh cells from the patient and artificially just reproducing the ones that had the um the you know programmed instructions to kill cancer cells hmm. so you'd uh, and then put them back in the person and then there's a newer version where uh you take donor cells and do the same thing so i have no yeah. idea though if i mean that, that's, that's that's definitely used a, outside of cancer care
2: um so i think the like blood's kind of a unique system in that regard in yeah. that you can you can take out something that's going to be a blood stem cell select for it and put it back in the like the blood stem cell niche and then have it produce New blood cells. Most other tissues don't function in quite that same way, so it's it's a much more challenging problem to do the selection outside and put it back in, um, because you don't have that same um, the same way the tissue works with respect to the the production of the blood cells from a stem cell population. Right? There's not the same turnover rate. So, for example, you know you can't really do it with brain cells because you know like. Each individual yeah, one you don't want to replace something. all of your neurons yeah. exactly. right. <laughs> if, if you take them out kind of mix them the up purpose. into a soupy like substance and select the ones that work then put them back it's not going to work um so would i
1: would i really want all my cells to become plurally potent at once anyway because, no like, that would be very yeah, <laughs> yeah. right so one you in seen the hundred... movie Akira?
3: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: so one in a hundred sounds pretty decent as long as they could keep doing it for all you know 100 times
2: yes and so that is one of the uh, approaches that people are taking in this kind of therapeutic area is um like inducing them permanently can be an issue um so the whole sort of cancer thing so um having a small number of them turned on periodically is approach that might work so you can put genes on a um uh, in like an expression cassette is what they call it where you have a gene that will only turn on if you're taking an, a drug that um, mm-hmm. will activate the the transcription sites that cause that gene to be taken so you can take an innocuous chemical compound that will turn on a particular gene expression cassette now yeah. so they have really great results for that in mice for eliminating senescent cells so um, some of those cells that do that slightly de-differentiation thing they kind of end up not quite being um as livery as a liver shell should be right um the um well it's a little bit more complicated than just that but that that slightly differentiated cell can end up being a a senescent like cell so the senescent cells um, have a particular phenotype they secrete a bunch of stuff that's kind of um cytokines and inflammatory things that cause increased inflammation in the tissue um, and they are slightly prone to inducing senescence in other cells around them um, and they're not really doing um, what is functionally useful in that tissue they have what is thought to be kind of an anti-cancer property um, so they, they sort of it's a, a a pseudo niche that a cell can become so instead of being, uh, de-differentiated and becoming cancer, it can de differentiate a little bit, and become senescent. Uh, so it's a kind of a, a purposeful path. It's pathway. like a placeholder
3: cell. Yeah, almost. it's
2: kind of a, yeah, a little place. It's like, do this. It's not as bad as this other thing, and it might help a little bit in some ways. Um, so those senescent cells and their um, SASP, senescence associated secretory phenotype, which is the jargon, um, um,
3: the Very cytokines sexy. and
2: stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they like their acronyms. Um, uh, is so, producing inflammation. Um, so that has implications for your, for your immune system as you get older. Um, but if you target those cells to eliminate them, um, so one of the things they did was they genetically engineered mice with one of the markers, so the genes that are expressed in senescent cells. And um, then once they had reached adulthood, they uh, gave them this drug which caused all of the senescent cells to sort of basically just kill themselves off. So what you end up with is a mouse that, as an adult, can be induced to suddenly lose all of its senescent cells. Oh um, my god,
1: that's sounds which, brilliant.
2: Yeah, and um, depending on, on sort of how you administer it. Um, yeah, it's, it's usually through some kind of programmed cell death, like autophagy, just induces that process in the senescent cells. Um, although sort of one of the properties of senescent cells is they're not great at apoptosing. So um, yeah. you can kind of force and measure it.
3: Uh, um, seems like it would be really traumatic for the mouse depending um, on how many of the cells were certain. yes
2: uh, and i think the the way that they um i forget the exact regimen they use and have to look some of the stuff up it's not really my uh my niche as it were um but they um i think you can dose the the drug the, the doxycycline is what they usually use over time mm-hmm. so it's not sort of one acute you no, know, all the senescent cells die now it's a bit more gradual than that but if you look at mice that have had this done it's night and day right it, you, there's like a a perfectly youthful looking brown smooth coated bright eyed perky straight spine mouse and then next to it is like a gray bent kyphotic spine just generally decrepit looking mouse um th- and yeah it's, it's a really it's amazing and the same age yeah
1: so, uh, how long can this go on for? Like, because not the mouse just keep doing this indefinitely?
2: Um, well,
3: I think, not indefinitely, but I think... Yeah, but not, not they,
2: indefinitely. But, they've um,
3: increased they, a mouse lifespan to like 10 years, right? Where normally it would be like 3 years?
2: I don't actually know what the sort of record is for mouse lifespan, and it would vary by strain. But yeah, they've done... There are interventions that have seriously Google. extended mouse lifespan by uh, so quite a considerable amount.
1: I have two questions about this. The first yes. one, um, kind of sillier... Does the mouse get smaller each time?
2: <laughs> uh, no actually uh, weirdly the the um, one that's healthier looking is quite a lot bigger physically huh. um,
1: So those uh, senescent uh, cells get replaced by something else that's
2: yeah I, and, and I think that also there's less um, yeah that's a, it's a very good question come to think of it. I'm not uh, yeah yes they they're also they're, they're post mitotic they're no longer dividing yes yeah that's a sort of um self-destruct yeah uh no no just um uh and sort of more average looking size as opposed to exhibiting frailty right you know, as we get older we get kind of you know thinner and skin gets looser and you know bone density drops and all that that all that unpleasant stuff <laughs> yeah it's you not can like how um... old people
1: are because they're like the biggest <laughs> awesome <looking> people around <laughs> no. They're like lobsters. They don't get older, they just get bigger.
2: There is an interesting um, paradox relationship there, actually, with um, size of organisms. So generally speaking, the bigger an organism, the longer it lives. But within species, smaller individuals of a given species tend to live longer.
3: Hmm. Yay. Yeah,
2: so it's a weird thing. I'm
3: I'm like (laughs) 5'2". Damn it, I'm going to die soon.
1: (laughs) So my, my second question, and I think the far more important one is, can this be done in humans too?
2: Um, the, the mouse one with the um, sort of uh, senolytic thing uh, where they break yeah. down the, that is, so the particular mouse approach is not really applicable to humans because it requires genetically engineering from birth with this expression cassette.
1: Oh, well, can at least our children be made this way so they have better lives?
2: Um, in theory, if um we go ahead with the whole genetic engineering of our kids yeah, thing, okay, like, yeah, and you God, know, assessing the safety God, of that God. is uh, yeah. So that's that's a whole other thing. Like, I, I think we should probably pursue the whole germline genetic engineering route as a species, but that's like you know another debate.
1: Um, like the safety arguments really get to me because. If hmm. if you don't pursue it you're going to die anyway. The lethality rate of a typical human is 100%. So there is no safety argument.
3: Right, you don't want to accidentally genetically engineer kids that will die at 6, you know. Yeah.
1: Like, sure, but that would
3: be kind of a tragedy. I mean, yeah, we're trying, trying to avoid true. that happening. But
1: like if you die at 66, that's also a tragedy. So, you know, you're going to die anyway. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, I
2: the, mean the, the, at the very least society regards it as less of a tragedy. Uh, Man,
1: society's a load of crap. <laughs> so they, right now, there's no way to to reverse so, engineer them into living. Actually, humans.
2: this is one of the most um, uh, sort of uh, interesting areas of drug development in the anti-aging space at the moment. So senolytics, which is a, a class of compounds that will cause uh, senescent cells to, to be broken down as a drug intervention. A lot of those are being funded as investigations at the moment. So there's sort of you know, some preclinical work and stuff going on with a bunch of startup companies. Um, there's oh there's God, a lot of Silicon Valley in, people interested. Can
1: you get me into one of these trials?
2: I'm afraid I don't have those kind of connections. Uh, oh, <laughs> damn
1: it. Okay. Not if, yet. If anyway. any of our listeners can get me into one of those trials, I will be your guinea pig.
2: <laughs> yeah, but uh, that is a, that's definitely an, um, an area that people are very much looking into and there's a lot of um uh diversity of senescent cells where there's a lot of debate around the precise definition of what they are there's different sort of subtypes um and successfully targeting senescent cells so that you have a compound that will only kill senescent cells is kind of analogous to the the cancer cell problem right you need something that will only kill the cancer cells you need something that will only kill the senescent cells but in the Senescent cell case, you have less of a tolerance for toxicity because you're dealing with otherwise healthy people.
1: Uh, I, what what the hell makes cells get senescent in the first place?
2: Yes, so that's that's an interesting one. I mean, like if you want to get only slightly facetious, um, now that's a hard word to say, facetious, um, then the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, God damn just, it. Like, <laughs> kind of. So there's this interesting situation we have where we're, an energetically open system, right? So theoretically, that's not too much of an issue um, because you know, we can take energy in and we can use it to do stuff, um, including repair things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But there's an interesting sense in which we're an informationally closed system. So here um, I find it useful to talk about um, uh, Nassim Taleb's uh, coinage of anti fragility. So you've got this uh, notion of anti fragility, which is something which is made. Um, stronger or better by stress in the environment right and then you've got robustness which is something which is only um resistant to damage and then there's fragility right so and the the metaphor that he uses is um the sword of damocles is fragile a phoenix is robust and a hydra is Mm. anti-fragile because you know you cut off a head it grows another one um so the genome grows two more sorry
3: If you cut off the head, it grows two more.
2: Yes, two more. Actually, yeah, getting actively stronger. Um, So uh, as with, as is usual, we have to talk about evolution a little bit now, because as Theodosius Stolzamsi said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Um, So in a population, um, the genome is antifragile because there's a feedback loop between what the genome causes to be the phenotype and what the genes end up being right? So that's the, the process of natural selection. So the genotype causes the phenotype, which is what the organism is and looks like and does. And then you've got the the um, the consequences of that in the environment, which is where a natural selection acts. So if a gene has a consequence, which is good for the phenotype and therefore is uh, selected for in this particular environment, you've got a mechanism that can correct what the genome looks like. It can undergo what's called purifying selection or other forms of selection, right? So you can, in the specific case of fixing something that that works if it gets broken, like in maintaining state, that's um, purifying selection. Right? So an individual on the other hand doesn't have that. right? If, if an individual, you're only robust, you're not anti-fragile, because there's no connection between what your genome is doing to the environment back to the genome.
1: But, I mean, I, I can see the whole culling and reproducing to to drive evolution thing happening, but couldn't? wouldn't that work just as well if the environment called people due to them becoming too unfit for the environment rather than just having an expiration date on every individual?
2: Um, so there's slightly different things that I'm, I'm talking about. So the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is there's not, like for me as an individual, there's not a feedback loop between what my genome is causing my body to be and what my genome is. Right. But if there's a population of me, and there's a selection effect going on, there's feedback that connects what my phenotype is to what my genotype
1: is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. Hmm. But, but I mean, your, your phenotype or, or your population would keep getting stronger through just the natural process of culling and replenishment, even if like the strongest one from the last generation wasn't automatically killed for no good reason.
2: Oh yes, yeah. Um, but my my point is that just that me as an individual, I'm robust. My genome is robust. It's not anti fragile because, yeah. Um, yeah, because there's there's not that that feedback loop, which means that um, if my genome starts going wrong, right, if I start to accumulate some mutations, I don't have a there's not like an external point of reference, right? I can't go oh. to I can't go to something else to appeal. What should my genome look like?
3: Yeah, you can't factory reset.
2: Exactly right. (laughs) So there's only so much redundancy, right? You've got two copies of your genome in all your cells, so you can, you know, if you get some mistakes, and there's a whole bunch of really uh, impressive and complex mechanisms for repairing DNA damage, um, but that's all they can do, right? They can repair the damage. They've got a sort of finite set of information with which to work. So when you think about it as a as a physical system. Uh, it's kind of an information transmission problem, right? You've got a set of genotype information that you're trying to send forward in time. Um, And like the the physics of signaling mean that there's a sort of finite amount of energy that you can expend to maintain state like at at a certain probability, right? So if you want to maintain the state of a particular bit, if you want to know that this bit will always be one, then you have to expend a certain amount of energy to maintain that state with a given probability for a certain time horizon, right?
1: So, so that's, it's primarily that the genome degrades over time beyond the ability of the cell to be useful still?
2: Um, that is, it's a little bit more complicated than that because it's not like we're accumulating so many mutations that everything starts sort of breaking down. And that's where the epigenetic information theory also sort of comes back in because it's not all of the cell's information is in the genome. A lot of it is, and relevant parts of it are. And there's definitely a role for um, genetic damage in aging, like because DNA repair mechanisms come up over and over again in premature aging syndromes. So these progeroid diseases where individuals age really rapidly, a lot of those rare genetic diseases have mutations in DNA repair mechanisms. So DNA repair and m- maintaining DNA state, definitely important. Um, it has also there's also implications for the epigenetic information. So even if you've not accumulated enough mutations to for that to be catastrophic for your body functioning, you may have accumulated enough epi mutations. So uh, back to what we talked about earlier with the the epigenetic information sort of encoding the information about what state a cell should be in um, about you know, maintaining a particular differentiation. If you um, like the same physical principles apply, apply as to the genetic information, right? If that gets degraded, if there's some loss of information because there's a finite amount of energy you can expend on maintaining it, then it uh, you start to get that de-differentiation
1: phenotype. Okay. So it's, yeah. so it's mostly about the epigenetic information getting degraded over time.
2: Uh, it's kind of a mix of both. We don't really know to what extent it's uh, epigenetically mediated to what extent is genetically mediated it's actually very challenging to characterize uh, like low frequency mutations like how often they occur in somatic cells in, in the adult organism
3: um, and it's more than just the genome right uh, Aren't there uh, I don't know if you agree with the like Aubrey de Grey's five factors of aging or however many factors there were but like
2: Yes. Yeah. I it's mean, a bunch there,
3: of systems breaking there's, down. There's um,
2: the whole hallmarks of aging hypothesis. Yeah. I mean, so all of that, I think, um, to some degree, links back to this sort of this um, information problem, because uh, you start getting feedback cascades, right? So once you lose a little bit of, um, let's say, you lose a bit of genetic information, right? So you have a mutation that affects your ability to repair DNA. That means that you have a higher probability of subsequent mutations because you've got an impairment in the repair process. And the same thing can apply in other systems like epigenetic systems. So if you get a point mutation that affects your ability to accurately continue to maintain the epigenetic state, then that can begin to become corrupted over time. So you get these positive feedback loops where you lose um, one piece of regulation of one system and that causes some other system to no longer function as well at maintaining its state and so on.
3: Yeah, and then like... So, some of what causes aging is sort of your body trying to mitigate this damage to extend the lifespan, rather than like uh, uh, the, yes. the yeah, example yeah. of the senescent cells. Uh, mm. It's sort of it's like a jury rig, <laughs> yeah, to keep the organism back. going. Yeah. And and
2: uh, it, it also it comes back to the the evolutionary question again because there is a certain amount of selection for a given lifespan, um, or at least um, mm-hmm. a sort of minimum degree of functionality at a point in time right so i mean evolution's utility function is to maximize for inclusive genetic fitness right that's what it's sort of grinding to do
3: reproductive fitness
2: reproductive fitness yeah so if your um if your reproductive fitness is in some degree orthogonal to your longevity then it will optimize for the reproductive fitness and not the longevity right longevity is not necessarily coupled to reproductive fitness so only cares is. about like, it to the degree that it is so there's definitely there's definitely a degree of coupling but they're not perfectly coupled they're not perfectly aligned yeah.
3: like there's the thing where social species um evolution let like humans or elephants uh, live long past reproductive uh like a reproductive age because mm. having grandparents increases the genetic fitness of the offspring absolutely and yeah. the offspring's offspring but, like, with the example of elephants, it just keeps the elder elephant around long enough to ensure that, like, the, the grandchildren have a better chance at life, but their teeth fall out. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. they just slowly starve to death. It's
2: horrible. It's, yeah, it's really, it's, uh, yeah, that, and, uh, and humans have this, too, because, like, having grandparents is, is super beneficial for us as well as for animals. Yeah, it's, it's, well, we can lot... talk.
3: I mean, elephants can oh, yeah. sort of talk, but mm-hmm. we can, you know tell Mm -hmm. the history of our tribes and explain, you know, what to do in case of a war or where I hid my cache of gold.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's why it can get really interesting looking at model systems that are short lived. So there's a really interesting collection of species called African turquoise killifish that Mm -hmm. live in seasonal um, like lakes. So they have the whole life cycle in a, in a series of weeks in the rainy season. So they're hatch. Yeah, basically in a puddle, right? And this kind of these like seasonal lakes that are sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller. And there's a bunch of these related killifish species that have slightly different lifespans that are tuned to how long the water lasts in their particular set of lakes. So you get this effect where if you don't need to live long enough to um, if you don't need to live longer, then evolution stops caring about the other stuff you get this notion of the um selection shadow right so after you've reproduced evolution no longer cares about whether or not you're functioning unless that has an impact on the reproductive success of your kids right Um, it's the weight caveat for the oddballs that are elephants and us right Um, so the um there's this kind of use it or lose it thing um in biology where if those genes are not being selected for to do this maintenance, then if we can get an edge in reproduction out of changing them, or if we can just you know save a bit of energy so we can do more other stuff that's not relevant to living longer, right? So maybe this gene has a uh, an effect that would cause you to live longer, but if you can like tweak it a little bit to be slightly worse at that, but it doesn't matter because you're going to die because of the flood's going to be over. Um, yeah, but you can and have more save eggs. energy to have more eggs. <laughs> yeah so you get this like evolution will cannibalize longevity in a situation where it's beneficial to spend that energy somewhere else because you have always got a finite energy budget
1: so what i'm hearing is that this is all my ancestors fault for not continuing to fuck well into their hundreds <laughs> yep
3: <laughs> Isn't that, one way that the strategy look? that like tortoises use hmm. like there's a uh, the galapagos tortoise that li- lives how old did they live um Very long time. yeah
2: some uh, absurd number of hundreds of years
3: it's yeah uh, they stay uh they continue to be fertile right
2: i believe so yeah for quite those a long long-lived
3: time. species that i don't get uh like parrots or whatever maybe that's just random hmm. um like that evolution didn't cannibalize those longevity genes
2: presumably there is some environmental factor that makes that um work for them yeah
3: uh, parrot's a bad example because that's also a social a social species, species. yeah yeah I'm trying to think of something else though i know there's like um immortal clams and stuff like that but then we may as well just be comparing alien species <laughs> well
2: I mean, the, the, the clams presumably get some selective benefit from living as long as they do um there's this other concept that's quite useful called um antagonistic pleiotropy which is Kind of an unnecessarily complicated name, but so antagonistic, just you know, against you know antagonists, and then pleiotropy means to have many functions or multiple functions. So um, a gene which has a beneficial effect in the short term for reproduction, but a cost later on in later life, can be selected for um, because evolution isn't seeing that cost in later life effectively. Right. So. Uh, that can mean that you have, um, yeah, selection for stuff that will be detrimental later on, but happens to work out well early on.
1: Okay, so maybe in theory we could be much less fertile in youth and live to be much longer, but evolution never saw that thing as
3: yeah. useful. Yeah,
2: yeah, that okay. um, might be. This is why I have this uh,
3: pet peeve about how. The pop idea of evolution always sort of almost substitutes it for God. Like, oh, and yeah. the power of evolution. Like they they like characterize it as this beneficial force. I'm just like, no, evolution's terrible. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. the system of non-random death. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: red, red in tooth and claw. Yeah, that's not it's not pretty, not at all.
1: Uh, so earlier you mentioned uh, that senolytics are being worked on, like drugs that would target senescent cells and yes. rejuvenate people that way. How? How far out is that? How are things looking? Do you know anything about that?
2: So the Senolytics are still um, pretty early, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, I'm not super current in their development. Um, I can probably point to a few new sources, if people are interested, um, where you might get more current information about develops there. Um, but the um, uh, there was a preclinical clinical trial that didn't go terribly well, aiming at treating, I think it was arthritis in the knees with a senolytic compound um, but I don't think that oh, should necessarily yeah. be read as being a, a, a serious problem for senolytics. It was a small early trial um, and it more of a safety thing. I think the efficacy could easily be better than might be suggested by that. So
1: it didn't go terribly well, you mean it didn't do what it was supposed to or you mean it like blew up people's knees?
2: Didn't do what it was supposed to. Um, I think from a safety perspective, it was, if I'm recalling correctly, it was fine. I should probably, if we're entering into the discussion of drugs, so I should probably just like, I am not a medical doctor, Um, do not take anything that I say about uh, longevity interventions here as medical advice. If you do anything to intervene in uh, your um, uh, sort of medical regimen, yeah, that's do so in consultation with your physician. Do not take advice about it from random people on the internet. Like myself.
1: Right. Uh, that said. How many, yeah. Do you know, how, do you have like, what would be your guess as to how senolytics are coming along? How many years or decades or for something initially functional?
2: Um, I would not be surprised to see some senolytics on the market for specific um, treatments like something like arthritis uh, in the next five years or so. Holy shit something, I mean, that's kind of a moderately optimistic timeline. But um, for senolytics, particularly for general purpose longevity intervention, I think that would be a longer time horizon, more in the 10 to 20 year window. Um, and again, we the effect sizes are not necessarily huge, right? We don't know how much of an impact on lifespan they have, right? Uh, so even if it's a small one, where you're seeing like you know a couple of extra years on average, they might start using them as longevity interventions. But you know it d- depends what your degree of interest is in marginal gains, as it were. Right. Right. Similar with a lot of the other longevity interventions or supposed longevity interventions that are on the market. Uh, or that are popular by people um, in this space. So there's a few that, I mean, you mentioned in the last episode, um, NAD boosters, NMN and NR, those are pretty popular. Um, they seem um, like just a priori, those are the sort of things you'd expect to be pretty safe because that's a very prevalent molecule in the body as is. It's a very um, like it's, it's fundamental to metabolic processes. So it, from a safety perspective, um, I take NMN supplements, I think they're, probably like safe as to how likely they are to actually be effective at lifespan extension that's yet to be borne out by a good systematic study other popular ones are metformin and rapamycin uh, metformin is normally prescribed as an anti-diabetic drug or as a drug to control a drug to control diabetes but there's some reasonable evidence that that has um, an effect on extending longevity i mean it's relatively small effect size but it, it it's it's seems to be there there's pretty strong evidence for that in mice and there's work in place to have a large-scale human trial on that one because it's
1: metformin metformin yeah all righty that's going in my black market shop Uh,
3: (laughs) don't i mean do a lot uh, of research on it because it has adverse effects that you might not find to be uh the the, you know cost-benefit analysis absolutely
2: Uh, yeah and i um i made some notes before the show i can send you a couple of links for for reference but uh, yeah this is one of like NAD's probably fine. That's the one I I take because you know this I yeah. just they probably priori- yeah, can't see much that's likely to go wrong there. Metformin yeah. and Rapamycin, slightly different stories.
1: What are the side effects? It sounds like they're not good. Well it um, sounds like they're extra bad from the hesitancy I heard.
2: So uh, Metformin I don't think is it um I don't know much about the specifics of the side effects of Metformin, to be honest with you. Um I don't think did you, did you
3: have opinion?
2: Did you yeah?
3: Um, so it increases lactic acidosis. Uh, mm-hmm. If too much metformin accumulates, uh, you could get chronic or acute kidney problems, or right. like liver problems, or even heart failure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which right. uh, that's like all worst case scenario things, but.
1: Hmm. Well, getting heart failure from trying to not get old sounds like a bad, <laughs> bad compromise.
0: Yeah,
2: other people who advocate for a lot of this stuff will make the case that getting old is the single largest risk factor for heart failure. That's true. Yeah. So that's um, uh, and for the most part, those risks are um, like for for a lot of a lot of drugs. You know, the added risk profiles are like for kind of rare edge cases. Right. A lot of people won't experience many of the specific side effects sometimes the side effects are very prevalent but something that's as as severe as heart failure is unlikely to be a very common side effect of a drug that is in common use and metformin uh, is used a lot right a lot of stomach effects
3: are a very common side effect though so like Hmm. Um, so you have to trade off you know the potential to live two three years longer than you might have like with just having like chronic diarrhea (laughs) Yeah, And but other I'm, kinds of uh, yeah, stomach disturbance.
2: Again, there's a lot of individual-to-individual individual variability. Some people will have very limited yeah. side effects. Others will have um, quite severe ones. It's, it's you know uh, dependent on people's individual um, genetics and, and environment, and microbiome, all kinds of stuff. And rapamycin it is perhaps the most um, controversial uh, potential longevity job, drug. Some people make a very strong case for it. Um, but it is used...
3: The uh, mouse that won the Methuselah Prize, they used rapamycin. Yeah. It
2: is... It, it, um, it's it, it's one that has uh, a pretty reasonable effect um, from what we can see. But it is an, an immunomodulator and is used in uh, immunosuppression in some areas. Um, oh. So... so
1: bad during COVID times. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, this Maybe. is
2: the thing. It's, it, it's not necessarily... So it's an immunomodulator, not an immunosuppressant as such. So there's the specific, um, like, I think it's uh, transplant. It's used for like, a, yeah. yeah, where it, it, it sort of reduces the risk of like transplant rejection. But there are other cases where it might actually improve immune function in certain areas. So it's not, uh, it's not a straightforward, like just dial down all immunity drug. There are more nuances to it than that. Uh, so, the, I mean, these are the ones that, um, for example, David Sinclair has said before he takes all three of those as a cocktail. Um, hmm.
1: How did he get prescriptions for them, or is he also sailing the high seas?
2: Um, <laughs> I, I don't know exactly, but he, he has. He always talks about having like a sack of rapamycin in his basement. That he just like <laughs> takes a tablespoon of the stuff. It's like
3: yeah, I don't know about oh, rapamycin, but I think metformin is a. Uh pretty
2: easy to get yeah metformin yeah it's like it's i
3: mean
2: it's um like if you if you do analysis on river water you see trace amounts of metformin that's how commonly it's prescribed these days like it's it's all over the place for
1: for diabetics okay i guess all you got to do is knock over a rapamycin bank one time and you're set (laughs) for life
2: (laughs) yeah somehow i gotta get a uh Hookup from David. Who knows?
1: <laughs> so, uh, what exactly do you do in the research field in here? Uh, um, are you working on the directly with a analytics company?
2: Uh... No, I'm. I'm not doing any um, uh, sort of uh, corporate work. So, um, my um, PhD work uh, was uh, well. One of the things I was looking at was uh, trying to create epigenetic clocks, which actually is a, a thing that's worth talking about. Um, because yeah,
1: tell us what is that.
2: So, an epigenetic clock is effectively just a means of estimating how old you are based on the state of your epigenome. Um, oh. So, you take a machine learning model, or it's a pretty simple machine learning model for those interested. It's just, I mean, it's barely machine learning. It's, um, uh, they usually use elastic net regression, which is sort of a compromise between ridge and lasso regression, um, to pick a set of estimators. So, a set of, um, in the case of DNA methylation clocks, particular cpg sites which is where the methylation takes place you look at the amount of methylation that's present on a collection of sites and that gives you a very accurate prediction of how old um, someone is so if i take a measurement of the methylation state um, and then i um, uh, run this predictor on those numbers i will be able to pretty accurately predict how old you are or at least how old an average of a population is, like how good it is at individuals is a bit variable, but you've got a very good estimate for the, the average of a population
1: age. Have you taken the test yourself?
2: Uh, no, I have not. Ah, yeah. oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that um, would be fun to do. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. Um, so, um, in order to actually uh, create one of these estimators, you're, you're doing um, usually. Um, a DNA methylation assay. So you take some blood. Um, the DNA methylation assays use um, something called an array technology, which is originally used for doing genotyping. Um, so um, you can treat the DNA that you extract from an individual with a chemical process involving bisulfite that will change all of the non-methylated seeds um, so that they will pair differently. And then you've run this array. Um, And you can see whether or not, um, when you try to incorporate a new nucleotide, if it's changed. So you can infer whether or not a site has a a methylation or not. So with that, um, and each of of these probes at a site has a particular location in the genome. So from that information, um, which uses a a fluorescent probe, so you, you kind of shine a laser on this glass slide with a bunch of little dots on it. And each one, depending on the color, tells you whether or not the Particular location in the genome is methylated, um, so then you have this big list of sites in the genome methylated to a greater or lesser degree in a given tissue. Um, so with that big list of like numbers, but you know, just sort of a proportion that's methylated, you use that as your input to the machine learning model, and the age of the individual from which you took it is the thing you're trying to predict.
1: And it, does people's like methylated age uh, differ often from their Years on Earth age?
2: That's where it gets interesting. So whilst it's very um, accurate at predicting your chronological age, the difference between the predicted age and your chronological age is very informative about your biological age. So if you are um, older in methylation age than you are chronologically, then you will probably die sooner than if you were younger.
1: That's so, a bummer.
2: Yeah. Plus or minus three and a half years-ish. Yeah. Um, So we don't, uh, well, I mean, there are certain things that modulate it um, a priori. So like smoking, you smoke, you have an older biological age by the methylation clocks, um, which is unsurprising. Um, And there are a few kind of environmental factors, but smoking, I think, is by far the largest. We don't really know that well um, what the things are that modulate it. That's kind of an active area of research. But one of the challenges in doing longevity intervention research is it takes a while, especially in humans, right? So <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to test whether an intervention works, you like it's impractical to give it to people when they're young and wait till they die, um, yeah. right? Uh, so the good high quality biomarkers of aging, like the DNA methylation clock, are a great um, tool potentially um, to use in the, that context so if it's a good proxy of full longevity then if you give someone a treatment and you see their biological age according to one of these clocks come down then okay maybe this treatment will work to extend longevity um so that's uh one of the spaces where these are looking at being used
3: in uh, nicotinamide boosters. riboside why is it easier to say than the acronym anyway <laughs>
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there have been a couple. There have been a couple of early trials of this with small numbers of individuals with um, like uh, longevity increasing interventions um, that have shown promising results for this as a as a proxy. Um, so it looks like this will be one of the things that is used um, as a tool in the anti longevity in the uh, longevity extending drug development space going forward. Yeah. Um, Well, so the ones that have been done so far are mostly the sorts of things we talk about um, before, with you know, like metformin and rapamycin, NAD, that kind of stuff. Uh, I forget which. Um, there's a small trial with like ten participants where they they did something along these lines, um, and that showed a small effectiveness. But it, it, it's a, it was it's it's so small as a trial that it was kind of a proof of That's principle. Outside. It wouldn't really say anything strong about the actual efficacy uh, so the when they go bigger um it'll be interesting to see but the other thing is um they they do know this works in model organisms to a degree because they, they've done this where you, know, you you can show even in like the c elegans worms that um uh, uh, they work on in, in the lab uh, where i am now uh, that treating with longevity extending interventions shows decreases in biological age as indicated by a clock. In the worm's case, it's a transcriptional clock because they don't have DNA methylation, but uh, same principle.
1: Is there any way to get one of these methylization tests, like a 23 and Me type surface? Or...
2: Actually, I believe there is, yeah. Um, although I'm not
3: sure I'd recommend it. Um... Oh, you don't think they it's very accurate? Like, um, th- there's I conditions mean... that could cause poor methylation, and it could tell you if you have one of those. I don't know if it's... like You'd have to pair it, though with this machine learning. Uh...
2: That's actually, I mean, that would be very easily done if you got the raw data, right? It's, it's basically a quadratic equation with a fixed set of terms, or, well, not quadratic, but a, a polynomial equation with a fixed set of terms. And it's, it's you know, you're, you're, you're multiplying by some defined set of numbers that's published in these papers and getting uh, an output. It's super simple to- Oh shit, I'm gonna do it. Model. Um, well, I but, mean, yeah.
1: you wouldn't recommend it because the commercial ones aren't very good right now, or? so. Uh,
2: I can't really comment on the quality of the commercial ones I think I don't there's no particular reason why they would be um good or bad we still don't know very well how good a predictor of individual difference this is because like we've been doing it at you know, kind of population level, we say, you know, like the average in these hundred individuals is that, you know, this many are accelerated, this many are less. We don't really know how effective it is at like the individual level. I mean, it, it, it might be, it might be an interesting thing to have, but eh, I mean, but if you got some, you know, 500 bucks or whatever it is to burn on the test, then maybe, but the the other thing to bear in mind is the privacy and data element Mm -hmm. of it, because. There's a decent chance that if you go for whatever commercial offering there is, is there'll be some terms and conditions that say we can use this in however various ways we wish. Like Twenty Three and Me has many of those catches. Um, yeah. So it's uh, depending on your feelings about giving the company information that might potentially one day impact on your ability to get life insurance.
1: Um, yeah, that's. But how could they tell like what your cellular aging is? if it was above or below the norm, if they couldn't tell what it was within the three-year margin.
2: Um, Well, I mean, you you still get, um, uh, well, yeah, so that's there's a source of noise there, right? Yeah, so I mean, you you get an exact predicted age with some error bars, right? Um, So we normally just effectively ignore those error bars, but somewhere in the error is a mix of technical error and biological age information.
1: So do you, mm, okay, and, I was wondering, do you feel, like, comfortable giving a name of any service, or is this something you'd rather just not? And uh, I th- uh,
2: If I couldn't actually Found remember any of them, I think there's one called Elysium, maybe?
3: Elysium is the company that makes NAD supplements. Uh, wait, no, then that's, and they also... Oh, they and do, I, do as well? I, yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I think they do. I don't know if it's the same company.
2: Yeah, I've not looked into the, the commercial um, offers of the test, Yeah. I mean, so at the moment they do that. the only commercially available sort of array based profiling one is very expensive because it's a whole methylome effectively. Or well, um, it's about 450,000 or another new ones, 800,000 sites in the genome. And they, they do the whole profile, but you only need 356 or so to run the clock, at least the original one from Steve Horvath from 2013. Okay.
3: Okay, the uh, company Elysium Health is the same company that makes the NAD supplement and they do have a $500 uh, home DNA test to tell you how old your DNA says you are, yeah. <laughs> your DNA methylation. That's,
2: that's d- called, much more than the cost of one of those arrays. Yeah. There's one
3: called
1: epiagingusa.com which has one for 169 I don't know why they're that <laughs> cheaper. Maybe they're not as good.
2: They might be using a different um, assay. Because you can do a targeted sequencing type one and run a different clock. There's a whole bunch of different versions of these clocks now. Um, so some of them use a different technology, which can be run cheaper. Um, okay. uh, yeah.
1: yeah. All righty. Well, we are getting close to... Oh, actually, I think we're slightly over our two hours. I I guess we're getting close to the point where we should wrap up. So I was wondering, like, what what have we not touched on that you would still like to touch on?
2: Um... I think we covered a lot of ground, but there's one thing that, um, so the, the question that I think was raised on one of the blog posts that might have instigated the previous episode was kind of what, um, areas might people be interested in working on in aging biology? What's an area that needs attention?
3: Hmm.
2: Um, and I think there's a really interesting point at the moment where, um, a lot of descriptive work has been done in understanding uh, how many of these mechanisms of aging work. Um, and there's a, a bit of a, a dearth of theory, right? We've kind of gone through a period of, there was a lot of theorizing, you know, this, this theory of aging, that theory of aging, and none of them were quite right. And they were all a bit, um, you know, they didn't have the whole picture. Uh, but now we have a lot more descriptive information, but we don't have as much theory. So I think there's a an opening for some new overarching theories of the aging process, and I suspect that these will be rooted in the field of non-equilibrium um, statistical mechanics. Um, so there's a, an interesting book that came out quite recently from, um, uh, what was the author's name? The title is Every Life is on Fire. Uh, Jeremy England, that's the name of the guy. Um, and he works in non-equilibrium statistical mechanics and non-equilibrium thermodynamics, that kind of area. Um, so it's understanding how... Um, like the thermodynamics of computation relates to aging. That's the area that I think is uh, potentially very promising, because we have all of this information about the way that information processing works in biology now. But we have a a gap in the theory of aging, and I think it's rooted in information theory. And we have these, you know, our biological systems are these very far from equilibrium systems that are maintained away from equilibrium by a, a flux of energy through them. So using ideas from non-equilibrium statistical mechanics to model aging processes is, I think, something that has a great deal of promise. Um, but I am nowhere near physicist enough t- to uh, be uh, actually engaged in that area of research. But um, that's something I think is a lot of promise. So if anyone out there is um, skilled in the math of non-equilibrium thermodynamics and that kind of physics, the application of it to biology, I think, would be fascinating.
1: That that sounds very promising. How how would they get into that? I'm assuming there's not like an application.
2: Um... Um, I mean, to be honest, I think the starting point would be get in touch with people like Jeremy England. Um, so uh, there's some kind of reading around that area where, I mean, generally speaking, in academia, if you want to get into a particular area, do some reading, find out who the authors are on the papers in that area, and email them. Okay. Uh, a lot of scientists kind of are working quantum. in a super niche area and they'll respond to emails because there's not that, you know. Yeah.
1: Uh, and if they have blogs, you can like read them. Maybe Exactly. On them.
2: Yep. Um, reading the, the blogs and the books. So there's Jeremy England's book. There's a bunch of papers. It's a nice talk from him from, um, MIT. It's a great starting point with a bunch of academic references in it, um, to, uh, some of the work in this area.
1: Awesome. Yeah, we we just uh talked to someone who said yeah, they got started in Miri by emailing and asking how can I help? And they're like, "Well, read all these papers for us." And they actually did it.
2: Yep. <laughs> and they're like, I "All mean, right, yeah, let's go." Yeah. I mean, it, it's often that simple, surprisingly, right? People people are sort of far too afraid to to just like randomly fire off an email and see what happens. Uh, Cuz it pays off more often than you think it would.
1: <laughs> yeah. Especially if you have
2: hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's um it's hard to get out of that groove, though. It's, a, it's, a, it's a easy advice to give, difficult to follow. <laughs> exactly.
1: And just from personal experience, you know, sometimes they just don't reply to your email and you can't be yeah. personally. That's They're busy yeah. people, too.
2: Exactly. They're busy. They have things to do. Um, so it's, it's, there's, a, there's a certain trade-off between um, putting in enough work in the initial email to signal to that person that you are interested and competent and worth their time talking to
1: yeah knowledgeable right. so, in the field
2: yeah that if you convey to them that you've read some of the research and have some like potential as a collaborator that won't involve too much um like additional effort from them right it will be a productive relationship for them to work with you mm-hmm. like if you can signal that do that because then they'll reply to the email much more likely than if it's like oh mm, this this guy's going to be a lot of work
1: yeah, yeah. cool all right well Thank you for coming on with us. I think this has been like incredibly informative, and thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, I think this has been like the 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 last longevity episode we did was fun and all, but the true value of that one was that we managed to get in touch with you and get you on here.
2: Oh, thanks. Um,
1: yeah, <laughs> I tend to run my mouth <laughs> a lot. Yeah,
2: and I'm 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 prone to going on extended expositions. So, uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh great. Thank you. Yeah, true. Uh, yeah, don't, don't don't read my thesis. That's <laughs> don't subject yourself to that. Um
3: <laughs> I mean.
2: <laughs> feel free, but yeah. <laughs> um what,
1: what was the podcast again as well?
2: Uh so the podcast that I'm I'm running is uh, uh Xenothesis. That's Xenothesis. at xenothesis.com. That's spelt with an X in case anyone's unfamiliar with the spelling of Xeno. But mm. yeah. Um, and actually, next week, we're doing an unusual episode. It's a special one. Um, we're, so Because Cyberpunk 2077 came out, uh, mm. we're doing a whole episode on um, cybernetics and uh, genetic engineering modifications. And um, I'm going to talk a, a little bit about um, software in that context. So it's one of the things people don't talk about, um, like having software that you can trust running in implants that are in your body is going to be a really yeah. important thing because uh-huh. the Internet of Things is a complete shit show. And when we start putting those things in our body, we're going to have a real problem. So uh, the the dystopian aspects of that, as well as the potential, is something we'll be, yeah. be talking about.
3: I would that actually, like have anything in my body hooked up to the internet. Well, I mean, there's already Fitbits and like the Apple Watch, I think, uh, can track like a lot of biometrics now. And oh, I'm yeah. wondering, since you mentioned 23andMe's privacy issues, could like insurance companies deny you based on your Fitbit info? Oh, man. Uh, yep.
2: Yeah, that's uh, definitely a possibility. So, I mean, if you ever, like, uh, I don't mean to... Impo- like uh be impertinent and inviting myself back on but if you ever want to do episodes on the subject of like <laughs> software freedom and kind of the that um you know how that pertains to those kind of things the whole yeah you know surveillance capitalism and the like that area like i'll yeah. talk your ears off about that um and also academic publishing as i managed to resist going down that rabbit hole right at the beginning uh if you ever want to hear my like uh ad hoc Can solutions that to that problem then uh, let me know awesome <laughs> that might be a bit taxing
3: yeah i think that's a good place to end
2: though <laughs> <laughs> oh that was you yep i did yes a little bit my little tiny contribution to that to the audiobook
1: <laughs> and thank you for that I, I, I don't yeah, say this enough, but like the, the audiobook was not just my work. There was literally over 100 people that contributed voices or music or something. And it, it was a very large group project that I could have never pulled off without everybody's help.
2: And yeah, I really can't take down the opportunity to thank you for that. Because I, aside from academic papers, I don't read much. I'm dyslexic. It takes me a little while longer to read stuff. So I listen to stuff all oh, the time. Okay. And... Uh, so without the your podcast version of The Methods of Rationality, I probably wouldn't have like read it and then gone down the whole rabbit hole of reading the sequences and getting into the rationality community. Um, so thank you for that.
1: Uh, oh, well, absolutely. I'm glad I managed to have some positive effect on the world.
2: Yeah. HPMoR was one of few books that like, when it got ahead of the audio version, I would actually read it because I was so interested in the storyline. <laughs> but yeah, it takes a bit. To get me to read something, if there's not an audio version and it's not a paper.
1: Yeah. Thanks.
3: Great. Oh, should we do a real quick thank of the patron? Who are we thanking today? <laughs> okay. All right. So much sense. If
1: anyone hears this episode and joins the information theory of aging uh, effort and then cures aging, this will be in part due to well all of our patrons, uh, <laughs> but specifically John Peterson this time. So thank you, John. You may have saved us all.
2: That is my fondest hope.
1: All right. And thanks again, Richard and everybody for listening. And we'll see you all in two weeks. Bye. Bye.
3: Bye, everybody.